Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire production. production. Hello, everybody. It's Bliss and me back again with another edition of the Birthing Instincts Podcast. Neither, neither one of us knows where we're going, <laughs> but uh, interestingly enough, the podcast will come out in my very last week uh, before I take uh, my sabbatical. That is so cool. So even though I've still got a couple weeks left in real time, uh, in Birthing Instincts podcast time, uh, I've only got a couple of days left before I, I'm off on my adventure. First stop will be Berea, Kentucky where I'll be teaching at the Indie Birth School, uh, a full day seminar on breach. And You're driving from LA to Kentucky? <laughs> yes, I am driving right now. I am looking for possibly to purchase a RV. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a naming ceremony at my office, if I find one, and I won't say who came up with it, but I thought it was great. They were gonna, you know, yours is named Hope, right? I was gonna call mine Hopeless. <laughs> That's not a good name. No, I know. I got I got <laughs> shot down completely by by the my my team. But uh, we were just planning about names, and that one came up, and I thought it was funny. <laughs> that so, is funny. It is funny. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, um, I'm in the midst of waiting on a breach who's in labor right now. Well, oh, still. While we're mm -hmm. talking, yeah, yeah. She, you know what, Bliss? I don't know about you, but I've been a lot of the midwives down here. We've been talking lately. There's a lot of labors now that just seem prolonged and dysfunctional, more so than I recall. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a four-day ruptured membrane one we talked about a few weeks ago. We had three-day, somebody putzed around for three days. Beth had somebody recently who was on and off. Um, my student, who's also a doula, had a client that after four days of prodromal labor decided she just wanted a C-section. Um, this mama has been with the breach has been ruptured now about 30 hours, uh, had a run of contractions the first night. We all went over there, very excited. And then, you know, she fell asleep. And so did is we. she a second time mama? No, first time mama. Mm -hmm. But even, even my second time moms, I want to talk about a couple of births. Uh, I've had, I had two, uh, this past week, both of them were surprisingly long. One of them was having her third V back. So she'd already had two, vaginal deliveries after a first time c-section and she did not labor like a multip um she labored yeah. and labor lingered and lingered and lingered and we tried all kinds of releasing things and position changes she really wanted to have a natural water birth with this one because all her other three had had like some drama to them and she ended up with some drama to this one too we were able to get the baby out in the in the home but i had to uh change her back into lithotomy position. We had to have her push. We had to have some super pubic pressure. We had to do things because the heart rate went down, which is exactly what happened with her other two vaginal deliveries. You know, every time we have our podcast at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, the garbage truck guys are right outside my window and it's, it, <laughs> they'll be gone in a minute, but it's really, really bothering me. You probably can't hear, they're picked up on the mic, but it's very loud. Yeah, I um, can't. So, so when the midwife went back for the first day postpartum visit, um, the word that stuck out in my mind when she texted me the results and all the data and stuff like that was the mom was heartbroken. 
And it's a it's an interesting thing how we on the outside, especially non-birth people, will think, well, God, you had a vaginal delivery at home. How could you be heartbroken? And there's lots of ways to be heartbroken. Yeah. Um, you know, it goes it goes along with the the Dr. Stu and other people's um saying that the secret to happiness is having no expectations. Uh, so when you have expectations and they're not met, you can always be heartbroken. Um, so we're working on that. We're working on that deeply with her. And I'll be going up there later in the week. Uh, it's one that's one that's up in Santa Barbara. So it's a little tough for me to get to uh, the postpartum stuff as easily. One of the problems with doing births from a long distance away. Um, but otherwise, the baby was beautiful. The baby weighed, uh, I think, was it eight pounds, eight pounds, yeah, eight pounds even, I think. And uh, she's breastfeeding like a like a champ, and everything's fine. But she still has that issue, and this is probably her last baby. Mm -hmm. So she was hoping to get that water birth that she'd always wanted, and and it didn't happen. Yeah. And then I had another lady, a lovely family in Topanga, first 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 time mom first baby and she did the same thing she had labor that labored off and on for two days she thought she may have ruptured her membranes at three o'clock in the morning one morning but we went there and it really wasn't conclusive and she still had a lot of fluid you could tell by palpation and her labor was really intense for hours and then it would just disappear for a while and then it would come back and then she was throwing up and she couldn't eat anything so we tried to prolong it by we gave, gave her some IV fluid. And after, you know, the uh, second night at her house, um, got up in the morning and we decided that the best thing to do was to go into our uh, lovely transport option here at Cedars, uh, Paul Crane. And she got a vaginal delivery 24 hours later, almost 24 yeah. hours later. Yeah, she got an epidural and pit. I mean, after all that labor, she was only three centimeters dilated uh, when she got to the hospital. Um, and um, once again, um, we went through a little bit of the nursing tyrannies, which I'll talk about, not nursing, pediatric tyrannies, which I'll talk about in a second, because uh, I want to talk about that. I have several that went, have gone on in the past couple of weeks, and I wanted to sort of lump them into one little group. By the way, I think today we're going to talk a little bit about induction, right? Was that our topic? Yeah. Okay. So I hope you're prepared because I'm not. <laughs> okay. A <laughs> um, couple of follow-ups. Do you have anything you want to tell us? You didn't have a birth this week, I don't think, did you? Nope. I don't have any um, anyone in dates until um, mid-April. So I'm kind of just trying to figure out what's next. Hope had a little hiccup on the road. We were going to get some body work done and we were 15 miles away and she broke down. That was last week. So um, she's at the shop for this whole week. And um, so I'm houseless at the uh, moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, you said that though, you're not homeless, you're houseless. I'm houseless at the moment. So I'm just kind of figuring out what's next for me. I'm going down to Santa Barbara. Um, I'm going to be doing a doula um, circle there. We're going to talk about how to talk to your clients about home birth, which I guess when this comes out, I'll have already done it, but um, that'll be nice. Um, and then um, something really interesting happened actually 
um, not super birth related, but just kind of magical that I thought I'd like to mention. So I think I talked to you last week about um, being on the land in Ojai, right? And some people coming um, with the elders and all of that. Mm-hmm. So the woman who, who uh, ran that, her name is Piper. And um, we became fast friends and she ended up living in Sacramento. So I told her that when I came to visit my boys, I would come for a night and and hang out with her because we liked each other so much. And we were talking and talking as girls do and talking and talking. And <laughs> yes, they do. And um, I ended up taking out a picture to show her of my sister, the one who lives in Oakland. And she goes, why are you showing me a picture of my cousin? And I was like, that's my sister. And she's, she's like, that's Tammy and Dawn ends up that they, when my sisters went to live with their dad in DC, she became fast friends with this woman, Piper, who I've heard my sister mention many times, but I don't think I've ever met in person. Turns out this woman that I just happened to meet in Ojai is lifetime friends with my half sister. (laughs) Is that like the weirdest thing? Yeah, that is, that is a weird, right? That because she has a unique name and you have a unique name. That's what she said. And the two of you were talking for hours and didn't realize that you might be that bliss and she might be that Piper. And Sky, she knew about my daughter too. So it's just so weird. So anyways, that was one of those times when you're like, okay, the universe is conspiring for something because that's just too strange. Um, and you just kind of start to pay a little bit more attention to like what what's actually intending to happen right now. So very magical, not sure why, but um, I had to take note of it and I thought it would be fun to mention. Well, it's interesting you should say that because one of my, the client who had the really long labor who ended up going to see Paul at the hospital, she's very into astrology and the cards. And so is my student. And they were talking and all this stuff is going over my head because I don't know. But there's something about last week or something, Pisces being in Leo (laughs) or whatever. And apparently that's a chaotic, weird thing. So maybe that's to explain the world, but it doesn't, I can't think that Pisces was in Leo for the last two years. So <laughs> I don't know, but, but a lot of people put a lot of stake in that stuff. So I'm not going to belittle it because you don't, you know, you always fear what you don't understand and I don't understand it, but I don't fear it at all. I think it's kind of cool when people say these things because, you know, maybe it's coincidental. Maybe it's, you can always, it can all, but it always seems to apply to something that's going on. So there may be something to it. I love hearing you say five seasons in Leo. It's just so cute to hear you talk about that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know anything about it. That's why. No, but it's still cute when it comes out of your mouth. It's All great. Right. Well, uh, okay. So I've also been getting a lot of feedback lately. Um, I've already gotten a bunch of feedback today about our uh, Dr. Flores podcast, which has just great. came out this morning. So yeah. that's a good thing. And then... People are still sending me questions about, about marijuana. So okay. marijuana must be more important than I actually thought it was. Well, yeah. So I have a letter here from, um, let's see, from Jasmine. And um, she's down in Rancho Santa Margarita. It's pretty down there. I discovered your podcast a few months ago from your episode on the Down to Birth podcast and have been loving ever since. I am not pregnant yet, but I'm hoping to start 
trying to conceive in the near future. I just listened to your most recent episode where you both talked about what to eat and what not to eat in pregnancy, and you briefly mentioned marijuana. You didn't go into much detail, but it was my impression that you're okay with it on some level. I have always been curious about this and tried to look at, into some research on marijuana consumption during pregnancy, but it all seemed to contradict itself with different papers having completely opposite results. Well, welcome to our world, actually. What I really want to know is how safe is marijuana to eat versus smoke while pregnant? It makes sense that CBD would be fine in any form, but does THC have negative side effects? If so, what kind? Thank you both so much for all you do within the birthing world. And P.S. If my future baby is breached, you'll be my first call. No, thank you. Jasmine. So Bliss, any thoughts on THC? Because I don't really know much about it. Sure. I, I was going to look it up and I didn't get time to do it. <laughs> sure. So um, from, from my understanding, again, when I try and think about these things kind of like similar to sushi, I look at a, it from a global perspective. So in other countries like Jamaica, where marijuana is a big part of their spiritual um, life, their, their rituals, um, it's interesting to look at like, what are the birth statistics there? So um, what we understand is that smoking anything deals, um, affects oxygenation to the baby. So if you're using um, THC, it's better to do something like edible or um, using a diffuser or something like that, where you're not actually dealing with the smoke of it because that's not necessarily can affect the oxygenation. Um, and similar to um, cigarettes can affect birth weight. So um, I think it goes back to kind of what I was saying about caffeine when we were talking about caffeine is go, taking a deeper dive into what is the reason why someone might be using it. So um, sometimes people get um, dependent on marijuana for things like anxiety and sleep and those kinds of things. So trying to like pull that apart and figure out what the usage is for um, and maybe doing some lifestyle support to see if we can minimize um, the use and maybe find some alternative methods to support them with what they're using it for. So that's during pregnancy. Breastfeeding, um, there has been a lot of research that has shown that it does come through the breast milk and it is really not recommended during breastfeeding because it can affect the development of a newborn. Um, so that's definitely a time when most people agree that um, the usage should be stopped if possible. Okay, that's actually brilliant. Thank you for thank you for sharing that information. I I always think of things in terms of moderation, and mm -hmm. I think that you know anything you do a little bit of, like a little alcohol, a little caffeine, uh, you know that sort of thing. Yeah. Probably yeah. something with pot, you know, smoking pot. I would say that smoking the root the, the smoking root gives you a quicker fix and a higher blood uh, concentration than the oral root. So if you're worried about not only the oxygenation thing too, but getting, you know, part of the reason you wanted to smoke it is because you get a better hit from it. Right. I mean, I mean, I don't, that's what, that would be why, what is she asking the question for? Like, what's the usage for, you know? So that's why I would say I would take a deeper dive if yeah. I was her provider. Yeah. yeah. And why, and why use it at all, unless there's a reason you need to use it. I mean, yeah. if I were pregnant and I didn't, 
need it for some medical purpose, I probably would avoid it simply because yeah. in our culture, we, you know, the, the, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so if there's, if it's working, your body's working fine, why, why mess with it? Yeah. Right. Yep. Okay. But again, you're right. Like an occasional, you know, occasional here or there, like a glass of wine, it's definitely not something I would be super concerned about. Nope. Or, or some sushi. Or sushi. Mm-hmm. Okay. Quick um, follow-up to our vitamin K podcast. Um, interestingly enough, a few days after our podcast uh, podcast on vitamin K came out, um, which we had recorded two weeks earlier, uh, Candace Owens did the second of her series of A Shot in the Dark, where she's looking at uh, injections that babies get, and it was on vitamin K. Mm-hmm. And so if people want to find that, they can go to Parlor. Uh, at, you know, Candace Owens on Parlor and follow that. I, they're an hour long each. I've watched them both. They're they're very good. They're very well researched, um, and it's not a political thing. So she's she's on there as a mother, but she's but she gives out four questions that I think are really good to if your doctor's insisting that you have vitamin K or if your hospital's insisting that you have vitamin K or threatening you with child protective services if you don't get vitamin K. Ask these four questions of them. One. May I see the package insert? Always for every vaccine. Yes. Well, vitamin K isn't a vaccine, but well, it's got, injectable. It's got Plasma. stuff in it. It's got a lot of stuff in it. Uh huh. And then if if your doctor or the hospital says, well, why are you worried about it? It's just a vitamin. Ask them what else is in it. All right. They probably won't know, but there's a lot of stuff in it that's not good. Okay. And then. Why the intramuscular route? Why not oral? Why not sub-Q? Because there is a package insert warning about intravenous or intramuscular vitamin K should not be given unless there's serious reasons to give it by that route, because there can be anaphylaxis, there can be other complications that occur when you give it by intravenous or intramuscular injection. And yet every single baby gets an IM shot when it's certainly not urgent. Mm-hmm. And the um, fourth one was something that we brought up is what's, ask them what the actual risk of vitamin K deficiency bleeding is, is, okay, so that you can make an informed decision. And I probably will tell you they don't know that either. All right, so good information, just good stuff. Um, Great. Briefly, uh, I've got three stupid aggravating stuff things. <laughs> Okay, so let's do, no. <laughs> let's do this stupid one. Here's a notice from the CDC. More than 700 women die due to pregnancy-related complications each year. And two out of three pregnancy-related deaths are preventable. As part of the Hear Her educational effort, CDC shares the following tips and resources for clinicians. For obstetricians, build trust with the patients when prenatal care begins. Encourage them to share their concerns and educate pregnant and postpartum patients about urgent warning signs. Okay. Now that sounds all really good, except you're going to know what I'm going to say is do we really need the CDC to be telling us that this is how we're supposed to take care of people? Secondly, is the 700 women dying? Is that happening in the home setting? Um, And if two out of three are unnecessary, are the unnecessary ones only in the home setting? I don't think so. so <laughs> um, anyway, so it's a 
Build trust with your patients when prenatal care begins. Well, yeah, duh, duh. Okay, so that's in the stupid category. But that's what the CDC does. I mean, look at, we go through four years of residency, medical school, four years of residency, and we come out and the CDC has to put out like reminders like you're in fourth grade. Remember to wash your hands before you eat. You know. It's due, maybe, maybe for most people, they do need that because they're not thinking for themselves. It's a very different generation. Yeah, I also believe that the doctors aren't going to be reading the, the CDC alert like that either. So, you know, I don't know. I guess, I guess when you have bureaucrats trying to do something to justify their salary, they have to do things to justify their salary. Mm -hmm. Oh, I have something I've got to share. Um, this was a picture that one of my fathers sent me. You're going to love this one too, Bliss. Hey, hang on a second. But we're in a podcast. They can't see it. <laughs> no, I'll read it. I'll read it to you. It's, oh, a, okay. it's a picture of a sign. Oh, okay. So there's a sign in the bathroom at the, at the hospital where this, my clients delivered. And it's, I have to, I have to give them credit. It's laminated. So the, the marketing people did a good job because they actually laminated the sign. But it's called, it shows a mother holding a baby and it says, skin to skin is in. Skin to skin is the healthiest place to begin with benefits for both mother and baby. Benefits for baby, cries less and is calmer. Breastfeeds better, stays warmer, has better blood sugar levels. Benefits for the mothers, breastfeeds more easily, learns when baby is hungry, bonds more with baby. Speak to the nurse about skin to skin today. <laughs> It's in, it's the new thing. It's so cool and hip. <laughs> yes, and if your baby's having little problems, let's take the baby away from your skin into the nursery, right? <laughs> oh my God. So I, again, I, that's why I've called these the, the, the stupid and aggravating stuff because it's stupid and it's aggravating. All hey, right? I did, we were, we got, we were um, mentioned, someone was asking about podcasts. And someone tagged us and mentioned our podcast. And another one that was mentioned was Midwife Cauldron. Oh. And so I went to listen to it because I was like, oh, I don't know this one. Um, and uh, they're from England, I believe. I only listened to part of it, but they both have English accents. So I assume they're from England. Love English accents. So they're midwives that probably lurk, work a lot in the hospital, you know, because of that, the way that um, their healthcare system works over there. Um, but they were talking about skin on skin in this particular episode that I was listening to. And something interesting that she said, which I hadn't really thought about, like talking in specifically to people, is that there's continuous skin on skin and then there's intermittent skin on skin. There is? Yeah, but this is interesting because sometimes when I tell my clients, I want you to be skin on skin. And then like a couple hours into the postpartum after the baby is born, they're putting clothes on. So I think it's interesting to talk about like continuous skin on skin is really having baby skin on your skin continuously for a extended period of time. Whereas intermittent is when you take periods of time where you put the baby on your skin and then other people are caring for the baby. Right. Um, and 
really, I think what we're wanting people to know is that for the first several days until breastfeeding is established, that's all we want is for you and your baby to basically be naked, except for maybe a diaper. Um, and obviously you have to eat and go to the bathroom and sleep and all of that stuff. So the times that you're not doing that, that your baby is going to do the best when it's on its mother, skin on skin continuously. So anyways, yeah, and, and the, you know what, and the father can step in when the mother needs to go to the bathroom or take a shower or something like that and go skin to skin too. Yeah. Uh, that's what we're saying. But, but it reminds me of a time when I was still, I think it was just after I left Cedars. So it was in like right around 2010, 11, where Cedars came out with the celebratory um, thing they called the rock and roll program. You may even remember this bliss. And they, they were so proud of themselves. And again, I'm mocking them a little bit because that's what I do. But um, that's my nature uh, is to call Well, it's to, to look at stupid stuff and call it out stupid stuff. And they yeah. were celebrating themselves for their rock and roll program. You know what the rock and roll program was? The, they came up with an idea that women with an epidural, we're going to move them from side to side every 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. Okay. Do I have to say any more that, that they have, they have all these high priced people working in marketing and, and administrative departments and then every year or two, they come up with, well, probably more often than that, they come up with something like rock and roll or skin to skin is in, you know, or hand washing, you know, they have a big hand washing campaign or, you know, this is, the, uh, never mind. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Did you know, Bliss, that this is home, home birth awareness year? No, I love it. Yeah. I'm calling, I'm declaring home birth awareness year. Oh, you're declaring. I'm declaring it because uh, from ACOG District 9, um, this morning in my email, in March, we celebrate International Women's Day. You knew that. Mm -hmm. I think people knew that. National Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. Kidney Awareness Month. You know, that's not fair. That kidneys and colorectal things have to share a month. It's discriminatory. <laughs> By the way, and you know what else is? It's National Sleep Awareness Week. I love it. Remember when we talked about this way back, you know, six months ago or something? Or so we they come up with one of these for every day of the year. There's some national day of something or other. Multiple for days. Right. Yeah. Stupid. All right. Now in the aggravating stupid stuff. Okay. Okay. I got a I got a uh, email yesterday from uh, Instagram listener, Mama to Ben and Bash. And uh, she says, yay, love Dr. Flores. Thank you for referring her to me. Question, you touched on COVID vaccines and this proposed law, which is crazy. And I think they're talking about the law that's possibly says that if you know people who counsel vaccine awareness or whatever else could lose their license, that sort of thing. I'm a government employee and 36 weeks pregnant, just got a promotion and guess what? Guess what? They're gonna ask her to get vaccinated? And if I don't get my booster, my promotion is pulled. Yeah. Pregnancy. Um, booster. Mm -hmm. In pregnancy, because they deemed it safe and not a reason to not receive the vaccine. I can't even go for an exemption. Absolutely nuts. I am a public health RN and I advocate for choices. I mean, prior to COVID reassignment, I worked on sexual health, including abortion choices, 
and changing policies that would give women the right to choose. So this crap has me infuriated. We talked about the, the, the uh, hypocrisy of choosing one thing, but not being able to choose on another thing. Yes. They're asking me to produce articles to back me up on why I should be exempted. Thanks, Governor Newsom. All right. So she says, my question, laugh out loud. I don't know why she, do you know, I guess she's just being feeling really beat up. Do you know specifically which podcast may have links to COVID research and pregnancy? My thing is, I just don't want to be boosted while pregnant or breastfeeding. Yeah, no shit. Yes, I received initial series and I had COVID once prior to the vaccines and again after. <laughs> Poor baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> we got to get more vaccines in you. I have hybrid immunity. At least I believe I do. Hybrid. Like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, she does. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I believe that that you and I have better immunity than she does because we didn't have the vaccine affecting our immune system. We just got COVID. Knock on wood, I hope so. So I responded to her and I said, my double vaccinated and COVID recovered son was just forced by his employer in the entertainment business to get a booster. This is insane, as you know. In people recovered from COVID, the booster after two months is showing negative efficacy, meaning that it actually increases the risk of getting sick. There's plenty of data out there. But now for saying that, I'm spreading, remember misinformation is not the same as untruth. Truth is misinformation these days. If it's really a misinformation and lie should be synonymous, they're not, they're the opposite. The employer, see, and and in my son's case, the employer blames their insurance company for mandating the vaccines. The insurance company will have plausible deniability And ultimately, no one will take responsibility should my son be injured. So I said, under no circumstances should you get this ridiculous booster. If you have to contact the lawyers at AFLDS, the American Frontline Doctors, or PIC, Physicians for Informed Consent, or with Dell Bigtree's um, ICANN, you should. Many of my podcasts discuss my opinions on this, but I do not keep the references as a resource. There is so much good data out there if you search Alex Berenson or the Highwire Weekly Show Notes. If you are forced to quit, you must sue their asses. You must be aware of the pending legislation in California making it an offense for me as a physician to speak this way. Um, at risk of being investigated by the medical board and possibly losing my license, it's insanity. I, oh, she says, it's insanity, I tell you, and I said it's worse than insanity because it's purposeful and malicious. And they know it. Thoughts, anything? No, I like that you have all of those resources for legal support, though. I think that's great. Yeah, you, yeah. she should not get this. I mean, it is counter-medical, counter-intuitive, counter-logical, counter-human to make a woman who's had two doses of the vaccine and COVID twice to get a booster shot while she's pregnant because ACOG gives out lies about the fact that it's safe in pregnancy. Let's not call it misinformation, let's call it lies. ACOG lied, the CDC lied, NIH lied, they're all lying. All right. Um, One other thing about uh, my computer today, um, I was forced to take the Microsoft, it's kind of like, didn't have a choice. It goes along with the same thing, you know, not having a choice. They made you get a booster for your computer? Yes. Yes. And when I came on to try to find, you know, to get things set up for this morning, 
Mm-hmm. But I'm glad I came on an hour ahead of time because I had things to do. But it took me 15 minutes to reboot and to get Wi-Fi, figure out that because everything's different now. The buttons on the bottom are different. Everything's changed. So I know that they do this maybe to make it faster or maybe just to have more surveillance on what we're talking about, you and I right now. <laughs> but um, I hate when I have to do that. I hate it because it always, it's like with your phone. When you when you update your phone, something always go, goes wrong. Right. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about one of our sponsors, Element. Okay. So Element, Element uh, it's spelled L-M-N-T. They're a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. As Bliss likes to say. None of the BS. None of the BS. Woo-woo. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks on special diets, but also, you know, people are exercising, people pregnant, uh, just it's, it's much healthier than drinking the stuff that Dr. Stu drinks. <laughs> Diet Coke. Yes. Diet Coke. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I know, tell them all about your favorites, Liz. Oh, um, well, you know, if you're, if you're wanting to avoid sugar, it's so hard. There, it seems like everything has sugar in it these days. So I really enjoyed trying this out before they even became one of our sponsors. And my favorite is the mango chili. So tasty. Yeah. So we have, they have a multitude of flavors. And mm-hmm. right now, if you go to their website, which is at drink element, that's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com. And use the code birthing instincts or bash last birthing instincts. You'll get a free sample pack for only the cost of shipping for five dollars. So give, out. It, give it a shot, especially our pregnant uh, listeners. If you want to have it for for your the days when you're laboring, or the days excuse me the hours when you're laboring. Sorry, that was three days. Could be days. Could be days. Um, give it a try. They're one of our sponsors. They help us make the podcast possible. So we hope you'll support them. Thank you, Element. Thank you, Element. So um, quickly, um, just recently, I've, I've had three or four people that have been to the hospital where they've had issues with the pediatric department at the hospital. And I wanted to just talk about it. Um, one of the things that came up yesterday in conversation, which is slightly separate from that, was that um, we're setting up for this birth, this breech birth, and we got our stuff all set up, but obviously nothing's happening right now. And she asked, she said, I'm out of oxygen. Can I use your oxygen? And I said, well, yeah, I have it, but we, we never use it anymore, right? It's not even really indicated anymore to be used. And, you know, if you, on rare occasions, maybe the mother needs it, but then it really doesn't work that well. And she says, well, the mother can't really need it anymore because the hospitals don't give mask oxygen to mothers anymore. Who said? The midwife is telling me this. Oh, okay. And I said, they don't. And they said, oh, no, ever since COVID, they don't use... They don't give, you know, if there's a bradycardia, they used to slap oxygen on the mom. You know how they used to mm-hmm. do that? They don't, yeah. do that they don't do that anymore because of the, the risk of the mask and contamination. And I don't, I exactly don't understand it, but it just goes to show you that, that if it wasn't important now, why was it important before? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, these policies, they, they change them to, to, to accommodate something new, but that means if it's that easy to change, then what you were doing before probably wasn't indicated either. Right. And that goes on a lot. So there's a lot of policies at the hospital that are there because they're there and not because they make any sense. One of them was the, the client that delivered, uh, just I talked about with Paul recently. Um, they wanted to go home about eight hours after they gave, well, maybe 10 hours after they gave birth. 
they weren't going to let them go because they didn't have a pediatrician that had privileges at Cedars. And the pediatricians at Cedars wouldn't let them go before 24 hours and actually told them that if they tried to leave earlier, they would call Child Protective Services. So they got a private pediatrician in our community, I'll give him credit, Dr. Ed Saraf, uh, to come to the hospital to make rounds on the baby and discharge the baby. Thank God. And, but yeah, so they, they weren't gonna let a normal baby, now we deliver a baby at home, we catch a baby, they deliver the baby, but <laughs> myself. Uh, but then we were there for what, three, four hours at the most afterwards? Yeah, I mean, sometimes, sometimes longer, but that's pretty typical, yeah. And then we leave. These babies have been observing for eight, 10 hours and they won't let them go. Is it really necessary? All right, all these things have something in common. I'll tell you at the very end. Then we talked, I think last podcast or two podcasts ago about, about doing bilirubin on all children. Yeah. Uh, all babies, they're getting, you know, when they get their newborn screen, if they, even if they, even if they don't want a newborn screen, I, I suspect they're checking their bilirubin on all kids. And then they're holding them uh, up in the NICU for billy lights if their bilirubin is a certain level, even if that level is in the normal range. And then I had two twins go to the nursery for observation because in the hour or so after they're born, their O2 stat was only 90. And uh, Cedar's policy was 94. Mm -hmm. So rather than keep them skin to skin, which was in, they decided <laughs> to take the babies to the nursery and separate them from their parents for an O2 sat of 90 in two babies that weighed 7.2 and 7.10 that were um, doing perfectly fine. Crazy. Instead of observing them in the room with the parents. All yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So these are all policies that our hospitals have in place. I'm only citing the hospital I know of, but I'm sure that this is similar to all the hospitals that you guys who are listening around the country have to deal with. And I'm going to just rhetorically ask, what's the one thing that all these policies have in common? And the one thing they have in common is they all generate a billable code. Hmm. Everything that they do, you know, there was somebody who wrote us that they were charging for skin to skin. Remember that? Or charging to have the dad cut the umbilical cord. <laughs> But there's probably a code for putting a pulse ox on a baby. So every baby is probably getting in the nursery now. I mean, in the, in the delivery room is probably getting a pulse ox. Oh, and yeah. They, and then there's a code, code a charge for that. Mm -hmm. Right. Why do they do that? How did babies live before they did a pulse ox on babies? They looked at them. Exactly. So the summary of all these things I've talked about so far today can be said best in a phrase that, is, that says they're paralyzed by the fear of adverse consequences. And when I heard this term, I can't remember who said it to me, but I heard it, I wrote it down, I wrote it in my car, I was listening on the radio, so I wrote it down. Paralyzed by the fear of adverse consequences. And that's exactly what's going on here. And it isn't interesting that their response to their fear always has a billable code. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. All right. So I got a letter about newborn screen, but we're going to save that for another time. Okay. Okay. It's my favorite time of the entire podcast. You know what time it is. You know what we're going to talk about right now? Bamboobies. Correct. We are going to talk about bamboobies. I just like saying bamboobies. Let's say bamboobies <laughs> three times. Bamboobies, bamboobies, bamboobies. Bamboobies. <laughs> Tell us what bamboobies is for you, Bliss. 
And Boobies is a great company that is um, committed to the comfort and of mom and baby and um, have a lot of great eco-conscious products to support that. Teas and salves and my favorite, their heart-shaped um, bamboo breast pads. Um, and they have even a clothing line with some great nursing teas. Yeah, so go to their website and, and check out their uh, online store. And you can find them at bamboobies.com, B-A-M-B-O-O-B-I-E-S.com. If you use the code INSTINCT, you get 25% off your purchase. So we love bamboobies. Not only do we like saying bamboobies, they still haven't come out with an organic beer. But nonetheless, <laughs> okay, we forgive them. <laughs> we forgive them. But again, we want to appreciate the fact that they make our podcast possible. So if you guys will use the code instincts when you go to bamboobiespot.com, we get a little kudos for that. So And it supports the podcast in continuing. So thank you so much. Thanks, bamboobies. Thank you. And thank you to our sponsors. We love our sponsors. We do. We thank do. you so much. Yeah. So I uh, want to get into induction, but I want to introduce it by going through this one letter here just because it kind of is relevant to our topic. She's, uh, this is from Claire in the United Kingdom. Hi, I hope this message finds you well. I have a bit of a random question to ask you and thought you might be able to help. First, I qualified as a midwife despite COVID and twins in 2020 and absolutely loving my new career. Thank you, that's great. I have, hope you have managed to keep sane over the strange pandemic years. What would you say, Bliss? That we kept sane? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have? Or right. we've gone crazy in just the right way. I feel better. So I listened to a lot of podcasts and heard that in the States, if an induction of labor is not working, sometimes calcium is given to reset the oxytocin receptors. And after a rest, the process starts again. Have you heard of this? No, not calcium. Mm -mm. Okay. Also, coincidentally, I was chatting to a friend whose dog recently had a litter of pups. She had 10 pups, but stopped contracting after pup number seven. So the vet administered subcutaneous calcium and the contractions restarted and the other three pups were born without issue. Hmm. I work in a very obstetric led unit, about 45% induction augmentation rate. We also have a very high rate of postpartum hemorrhage which from a biological perspective makes sense to me as it is the channel, calcium channel receptors that bind with oxytocin to induce muscle contractions. So if those receptors are overloaded and calcium is in short supply, you end up with a uterus that won't contract postpartum. Interesting, huh? Mm -hmm. I've, heard of, I've had a few interesting conversations with obstetric colleagues to discuss this and have been told, quote, we are not dogs, why would we give calcium, unquote. So when I hear a doctor say that, I immediately think that calcium is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. They also say, quote, there's no evidence for calcium being required to help uterine contractions, unquote. And quote, that's interesting, but not all evidence is good. So maybe you should stick to doing midwifery stuff, unquote. Thank you, doctors, for demonstrating perfectly without my help, your obtuseness. I'm in the process of applying for a research fellowship to explore some of the hormonal and electrolyte components of induction of labor and thought you might be able to point me in some useful, or if not, I'm completely off the mark, research on the subject. I don't know that I can do that. Uh, it seems that the United Kingdom interpartum care is deficient in the role of calcium, but I've heard it's different in the States. If not, so let me know. 
I would have to say that I've not heard this as something that's thought of or being done in the States. I'd like to know, no. uh, Claire, where you heard that somebody told you that it was being done, because that's fascinating. But uh, we're interested to see the research, how that goes. Yeah, well, I did find one paper and I just wrote down that this is a 2003 paper from Europe and they found that in women who delivered vaginally, their serum calcium levels were higher. Good to know. So <laughs> I don't know if that's something where you can treat that orally. I don't know if there's a number you're supposed to shoot for like vitamin D. I, I, I don't know anything, but I think it's something that I'm putting out in the ether because you know, we have a lot of dysfunctional labors lately. Maybe it would be really interesting to see if there's a calcium issue related to that. Um, I don't know that you know the four patients that I've had recently would, would constitute a study, plus I didn't draw their calcium levels, so I have no idea. But it really is a, it's fascinating to see the, the story about the dog, which yeah. as we know, we are all mammals, excuse me, yes. Dr. Idiot. Not that much different. Um, what's that? Not, we're not that much different. Yeah. We talk about it all the time. Um, the fact that the that vets do that, I'm going to talk to my vet and find out if that's something she's heard of. Anyway, if anybody finds any information on that, please send us uh, some data. Yeah. I would say what's happening with the dysfunctional labors, um, Stu, is either more COVID related or um, just uh, emotional. And we know collectively that um, we're, we're, uh, ha we have a lot of fear, you know, not just the people who are getting the vaccine, but we're, you know, there's a lot of fear right now, you know, with what's going on in Ukraine and, you know, just our world is kind of topsy-turvy. So it makes sense to me that there could be, you know, some conflict within these moms, even if they're not totally conscious about it. And yeah, so I, think, I think that there's a lot to be said about what you just said. Yeah. Um, I think I I don't know about the COVID situation because the, the four moms that I talked about recently, um, none of them were vaccinated. Yeah, uh, it's not, but it's not just vaccinations. It's shedding, it's getting the virus. It's, you know, there, there's just a lot about COVID and what's happening right now, whether you're vaccinated or whether you were just exposed that we don't totally understand. There's a lot more losses. There's a lot more um, retained placenta, a lot more hemorrhages. You know, we can, a lot of midwives are talking about it. Um, so it, it, it's going to be a, something that we're going to have to just keep paying attention to over a long period of time before we can actually see what the actual ramifications are for us as a species, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, you know, all of it. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult to prove this stuff. And, you know, correlation doesn't always imply causation, but but um, there is a correlation, I think, between labor dysfunction and $7 gallon gasoline, too. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. That is it. You, That's it. you just figured it out. <laughs> Why did I not think of that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you want to talk a little bit about induction of labor. So where do you want to take it? Well, you know, you're my stat guy. So um, I was hoping that you would have some of the statistics of, but what did that woman just say in her, in her um, 45, ward, yeah. 40, what? 45% are either induced or augmented. 45%. And I, I, you know, I feel like the statistics here that I've heard recently are much higher. Yeah. He's thumbing up <laughs> um, upwards of like 70 or something of inductions that are happening. Um, so I thought this would be a, you know, a good topic. We've talked a lot about the, um, 
the what's the study Stu? the trial arrive, the arrive trial the arrive trial so we've talked about that in a lot of podcasts um about um how bs that is that we're having so many more inductions but i think even since covid um the the desire to control the outcomes has increased considerably and and um I'm hearing this through, you know, obviously I don't do um, hospital births anymore, but I keep my finger on the pulse through the doulas that are in the front lines and, and working with the majority of these moms as they enter the hospital and desiring to have support. So I think that um, one of the things that we could start with is things that we do um, at home quote unquote, natural inductions, right? Um, so any anything that we do to augment labor or to try and induce labor is um, considered an intervention. So I just wanna start there. And I think that most midwives, um, unless there's a real indication, would much rather allow the body to go into labor naturally because we believe in that ripple effect that you and I talk about all the time. But um, here in California, um, we have this law that says that babies have to be born um, within 42 weeks or they're gonna have to go to the hospital. So this forces a lot of stress and a lot of um, interventions that I don't think would be happening normally um, if we didn't have the legislation causing us to do it. So before, um, we, before we talk about how we do it, yeah, let's talk a little bit about why we should be doing it or why we shouldn't be doing it. What are the indications? Right. I think right. it'd be a great place to start. And then we could go. Are you talking about for home or in general? I'm talking about in general. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, obviously there are medical reasons for induction. And those okay. would be, well, yeah, well, I mean, yes, but those would be things like preeclampsia, mm -hmm. with, um, things like, um, well, in 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 a in a Wiley review article um, that I that I did some looking into, they said that recommendations for induction of laboring are for post-term gestation. By definition, post-term gestation means greater than 42 weeks. Uh-huh. So people understand. From 40 weeks and six days to 41 weeks is late, late. term. Right. Mm -hmm. So post-term by definition means not one day past 40 weeks. And is that ACOG that created that definition? This is the British, this is from the British uh from the British side. Okay. Okay. Um who tend to be much more reasonable about stuff like this. <laughs> yes. So premature rupture membranes at term, they consider to be an indication, but they don't say for how long. But I know that they, everybody sort of has this 18 or 24 hour thing in their head. And again, it gets back to one of our tenants here on the podcast is that anything that has a perfectly even number is probably bullshit um, because bacteria and world, world doesn't work like that. Right. Um, we have a lot of these, uh, sayings in our, in our thing. Another one I was thinking of when you talked about the ARRIVE trial is, is that the uh, sweet sounding name for something is inversely related to its accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> so when something has like a great name, like uh, like the ARRIVE trial, I mean, when they, when they come up with an acronym that 
happens to be this perfect word, that it's probably crap. Um, another indication would be um, a premature rupture of membranes near term with pulmonary maturity, which is supported, is supported by the evidence. Again, in our practice at home, we, you know, if it's premature, we're not going to be dealing with that at home. No. But in the hospital, they're going to want to buy you 24 to 48 hours of ruptured membranes or possibly even giving steroids if you're prematurely ruptured and buying you 48 hours to keep the baby inside. So in those settings, they believe that 48 hours of ruptured membranes is what gives you a benefit. Okay. Yet if you're a term and you have at 24 hours, that's not a benefit. Right. Which doesn't actually make sense. Well, they're weighing, they're weighing the risk of lung maturity. They're weighing the risk of lung maturity and stuff like, I understand that, but a lot of their, a lot of their logic can be picked apart. If you actually just take a moment to think about what they're saying. Yeah. A true growth restriction near term. Yeah. Yeah. Reduces the risk of interfuterine fetal death, but increases cesarean delivery and neonatal deaths, of course. Um, But evidence is insufficient bliss to support induction for Insulin requiring diabetes, twin gestation, fetal macrosomia, oligohydramnios, cholestasis of pregnancy, uh, and maternal cardiac disease. So mm-hmm. all these things that would doctors would tell you you need to be induced for, the evidence is not supporting that unless there's another indication going along with it. Just because someone has cholestasis doesn't mean they need to be induced, right? It depends how bad is the cholestasis, how tolerating of it is the mother, and how far along is, what gestation are you at? You have to take all these things into consideration. But a lot of people just will hear the word cholestasis of pregnancy or they'll, they'll hear oligohydramnios and they'll say that baby's better off out than in. But it is always true. Sometimes it is true, but that's a decision that comes with looking at all the situation, all the facts and then sharing the decision-making process with the family, of course. Well, and, and midwives have limitations, legal limitations, legislation of what we can do. You might have a little bit more ability to be able to make those individualized decisions, but unless we have a good collaborating doctor that we're working with, um, we don't have that same ability. Yes, but this is another good example of how something that's legal doesn't or illegal doesn't necessarily, I'm not saying this right, that legal restrictions aren't always logical or commonsensical or medically indicated. (laughs) Well, yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. Okay. So, I mean, there, there are certain indications where things for induction are, like, like um, we just talked about, like severe hypertension, preeclampsia, growth restriction, uh, placental, uh, partial placental abruption, possibly, or, or some other thing where, you know, the baby's not in complete distress or whatever, but there's a, you've got a problem going on, you think the baby's better off out than in. That makes sense. But all mm-hmm. these things where they're talking about 39 weeks, Suspected macrosomia, suspected small for gestational age, um, gestational diabetes, what? Oligohydramnios. Yeah, those sorts of things. Yeah, what, and what is oligohydramnios? I mean, it's not the same thing as lowish fluid. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your fluid was eight last week and now it's seven. Well, here's a question I always ask people, why were they checking? I mean, you know, Problem is that we use technology way too much. It leads us down this path. And it, uh, and I think that the technology gets back to that sentence I said earlier, the use of technology is because we're paralyzed by the fear of adverse consequences. And so we wanna avoid adverse consequences. So what do we do? We create situations where we create adverse consequences. 
you know, I, you know, yeah, this is one of those podcast lists where I, I start to like, I came in like really sort of happy and good. And I'm like real frustrated because all this stuff is so obvious. Okay. So induction. Yeah. Uh, when it's necessary <laughs> in your world, mm-hmm. the midwifery world, what are the, what are the, some of the things that you like to do? Um, so one of the things that I would do at home, which the only reason that I'm doing this at home is because of the law. So there are very few times that I can think of from a midwifery perspective that you would actually do this unless you were afraid that your client had to go to the hospital for a non-indicated reason. Um, but the things that I normally do is I start with, um, you know, offering a membrane sweep. Um, and there is some research, although, you know, I'm skeptical about research sometimes, um, that doing serial cervical sweeps are more effective than just doing one. So starting off earlier in the week, um, so that you can, you have time to do a few of them, um, would be indicated, of course, letting the mom know that, you know, there is a potential of breaking the bag, which causes other problems that we might not want to be dealing with. So giving them the option of whether or not they want to do a membrane sweep and then whether or not you can actually do one if the mom, um, uh, if her cervix is favorable for that. So the mom that I just had, um, who was bumping up against 42 weeks, I wasn't even able to give her a membrane sweep. So um, because she was too far back and, and I couldn't even get two fingers in. So that's a possibility. Um, the next would be homeopathy, um, pulsatilla, semifuga, and califylum, which is basically um, black, blue and black cohosh in a um, homeopathy modality. Um, and we've talked about homeopathy many times, so I won't go into like all of the specifics of how you use homeopathy. Um, but those three, um, utilized alternating every 15 minutes for a couple of hours, you should be able to see. Yes. Did you have a question? Yeah. I was going to say, could you, could you say the three things that the three of, again, you said pulsatilla. Semifuga. What's, the, what's that one? Semifuga. Semifuga. Okay. Yeah. Um, alternated every 15 minutes for a couple of hours and then giving it a pause, taking a nap, taking a walk, having some food and then trying again. Um, honestly, I've never seen just the homeopathy work like that day they go into labor, but I think the succession of doing these over a few days might be one of the reasons why I'm, I have such a high success rate with, um, with the castor oil on day three. So, um, so that's one day. The next day would be trying herbology. Um, and so there are two different ones that you can use, or you can try both of them, which is um, cotton root bark. Um, and the other one is blue and black cohosh. Um, recently, when I tried to buy them locally, I had to buy them separate, but you can get them together, B&B, Blue and Black Cohosh, that is already in a uh, tincture together. But if you need to get them separate, you can. Um, are there any downsides to taking any of those or are they pretty much, I know that you say with homeopathy, I think that there's no downside to it because you, it doesn't, but what about herbs? Is there a downside to Blue and Black? 
there, there, there is some controversy around blue and black cohosh, especially having to do with um, women who have had a previous cesarean, so women who are attempting a VBAC. But um, there are some midwives who believe that it can cause more bleeding. In my experience, that is not what I have experienced with blue and black cohosh, and um, and it's been used. This is one of those herbs that's been used by midwives for since the beginning of us knowing that this was something that could work. So I'm much more uh, lean towards the fact that this is a traditional herb that's been used forever than um, looking at, again, some studies that may be slanted. Um, but the, I would say the downside that I would tell my clients when I'm giving them informed consent is that sometimes it can give your um, body start to have contractions that don't lead to anything. So that can lead to mental exhaustion for the mom, like feeling like nothing's going to work. This is a failure. My body doesn't work or just physical exhaustion before you're actually in active labor where you start to have contractions and then they peter out and they don't go anywhere. But again, I feel like what I'm seeing is doing this in succession and then doing castor oil on the third day. I really haven't had an experience where castor oil hasn't worked. And I think that um, a lot of people will talk about the terrible side effects from castor oil um, with diarrhea and vomiting and dehydration and all of that. But I believe that a lot of those people are using two ounces of castor oil instead of two tablespoons. Um, and uh, I would really recommend that if you're using castor oil that you do two tablespoons with um, some source of protein. So the, the recipe that we usually use has um, either almond butter or peanut butter in it, along with some juice, um, usually something that is like, like a nectar. So it's, you know, has a lot of sugar in it as well. And then a bunch of water. So like 12 to 24 ounces of water blended together with the castor oil so that you're getting some nutritional value as well. I've heard people give it with vodka and other things. And I just don't think, I just can't, I just can't wrap my head around why that would be a good idea to give a, a, a mom vodka and orange juice with castor oil in it to try and augment her labor. Yeah, I can't add much to this because I, I, I went water skiing on the day we did the castor oil lecture at medical school. So, <laughs> but, you know, people talk about the downsides of doing something like, like uh, blue and black or um, castor oil. But then I think about like, we're going to go in the hospital and have all of those interventions and Pitocin and then an epidural. And, you know, like if you're, if you're up against this and you've got a baby who's got a good um, score when they did their biophysical profile, I, I would say this is a much better option um, than the synthetic forms and all of the things that you're going to have to deal with in the hospital. I, I would agree. I would agree with you. Um, in most cases, uh, again, you have to use, as you get more experienced in your, in your careers, you get to see what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes you'll, you'll have a client where their cervix is really unfavorable and you, you know, it's just, and they're exhausted already. And then maybe it's, yeah. not, it's not wise to do these sorts of things. Yeah, it's individualized. You, and you have to give them informed consent and figure out what feels best for them. Um, so when we're talking about the herbs stew, a lot of people will talk about using a breast pump. And it's interesting, even when I saw Dr. Salinas um, with that client, she was like, well, you've tried everything, right? You've tried like breast pump. And I was thinking, 
there's so many more things than just doing a breast pump. But um, I, I understand the desire to produce oxytocin through nipple stimulation, but I would really advise you that if you don't have contractions that are already happening, using a breast pump for long periods of time before you deliver a baby might not be the best idea because now you've got nipples that are already sore and tender from, from trying to augment your labor. And now you're going to have to be nursing a baby, which, you know, just use it judiciously and be smart about, um, using a breast pump to augment or start labor. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, but if you've got some good contractions going with the herbs, then you could add the breast pump in and see if it really can t- kind of tip it over the edge, but um, be cautious about that. And could then the third just, day. Well, could you just use um, like a warm washcloth to your nipples and just instead of a pump and just sort of stimulate the nipples or, or is breast pump? You can use your fingers. Yeah, that's what I meant. But so Yeah, or your partner, you know, you can, you can definitely do any of that, but you, you know, Usually women don't cause themselves to get sore um, through stimulating that way, but the, but the breast pump can be, you know. Yeah. That's why I said, if you, if you do it manually, you're, you're going to, you're going to, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then the third day would be castor oil. So um, two ounces, um, two hours apart. And usually by the second time, the second dose, um, you've got some good contractions going. So that would be, uh, I, I don't like to use the word natural, but that's the, the word that's used mo- most is natural inductions because any induction is not really natural, right? No, no it's not. <laughs> but it's, I guess it's more natural than, uh, you know, a pharmaceutical um, induction. So you can talk, I think, since I've been talking so much about um, what, what would be done in the hospital for augmentation? Well, there's a couple other things we, we could, well, we could do at home as well. Um, one is uh, using a balloon. Some people yeah. do that at home. Mm-hmm. And some people use a Foley. There's actually something called a Cook catheter, which is a double balloon, which is supposedly slightly more effective. Um, so that's an option. But I think once you've done that, you're committing yourself uh, because it's now you put something in the cervix. You, even though the membranes may not be ruptured, you're you're really committing yourself, and 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 it's it it pretty useful. It, it seems to be helpful when women have a really tight cervix, and obviously you can't do a sweep, you can't do the things you mentioned earlier. Uh, once you're beyond two to three centimeters, a balloon isn't going to help much because it really only dilates you up to three plus maybe three and a half centimeters before it falls out. So you wouldn't want to use it in somebody who's already three centimeters dilated. That really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, But if you're reaching a point where someone really needs to be delivered and their cervix is that unfavorable, I haven't seen the balloon be that successful uh, in the home setting. I haven't used it much in the last couple of years, but initially when it first came out, I did use quite a bit and it really didn't change much for me, but it's certainly something that you can use before you decide to go to the hospital. Um, Or if you are planning a hospital delivery, whenever I counseled my doula clients, I would always say advocate for trying the Foley before starting Pitocin because it could actually kick your body into labor because it also, um, besides just manually dilating, it um, releases prostaglandins. So um, it's worth a try. Okay. I'm not a fan of, some people will say, well, why don't you just rupture membranes? No, um, I'm not a fan of that at all. The bag water serves a purpose. 
for the baby in labor. Lots. And if it ruptures on its own, that's nature's way of doing it. But to artificially do it to try to stimulate labor is probably not a good idea. You know, theoretically, if someone were walking around six to seven centimeters for a week, you know, you try all these other things and maybe you get it to contract a little bit, maybe rupturing the membranes, but it, but never early. I think it's just a setup for a problem. Um, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. So then you have, um, I'm, we, we're probably forgetting something. Uh, I don't think marijuana is a good choice here. But, <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, um, but we always tend to forget something. But then you get into the hospital and the medical stuff. And, you know, ACOG has its recommendations for things that are called uh, what we call level A or, or good evidence recommendations for prostaglandin, uh, for cervical ripening and induction of labor. And or lower high dose oxytocin regimens are appropriate for women for whom induction of labor is indicated. And they can, you talk, can you talk about the, the, the different types of prostaglandins? Well, yeah, the ones that, I mean, uh, prostaglandin or misoprostol comes in a 25 microgram, well, it comes in a 100 microgram tablet. They usually cut it in quarters. And then they, you, you insert a, uh, a small quarter of a tablet, 25 micrograms, uh, and you put it in, and then you can repeat that every four hours. Put it in up against the cervix. Yeah, you put it in the posterior fornix, which is the space between the um, cervix and the po in the back of the vagina, in the back. So and when I was with Dr. Salinas, she mm -hmm. said that they don't do it vaginally anymore. They're giving it orally. Okay, they may be, but now when, when, again, I've been out of the hospital for that long, it seems to me that orally you'd have to give a much bigger dose though. But isn't that interesting because you could do that out of the hospital as well. Um, do what? Misoprostol? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know what? Um, again, you probably could, Bliss, but we're walking on uncharted territory there as far as because of the potential for uh, tachycystole or fetal bradycardia when you give that and you're at home, you don't really want to do that. It doesn't happen very often, but it can happen. And so you're not on a monitor. Probably not something that I would be suggesting to people yeah. to do, do at home uh, or in their, in their offices. Yeah. Um, at this point, if you get to the point where someone really needs to be delivered and their cervix is that unfavorable. And, and misoprostol is a good choice for um, cervixes that are unfavorable. Um, if, they're, if they've got a Bishop score that's higher and we're not going to get into bishop scores today, but people can look in that if you got a bishop score that's eight or nine or higher, then going right to Pitocin probably makes some sense. Just doing a sweep in Pitocin will probably work. There's also something called Cervidel. Some people like Cervidel because it has a little string on it and you can put it in. And then if you feel like there's too much contractions or whatever, you can, you can pull it out. But um, I was never a Cervidel fan, so I can't really speak to its efficacy. But I did find that, that the 25 micrograms of misoprostol every four hours, um, you know, usually almost always got people into labor by the second or third dose. Um, and after a certain point of time, then they switch over to, uh, to oxytocin. Can I ask a question? Me, pitocin, not oxytocin, sorry. Thank you. Can yes. I ask a question? Okay. So you said usually got them into labor. So my understanding of um, the prostaglandins is it's a topical that is attempting to ripen the cervix so that when the contractions start, that they're more effective. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it's, it, it does both. It, it ripens the cervix, it softens the cervix. Um, it causes the cervix to release, as the cervix softens, it releases its own prostaglandin. So it starts the, it starts the cycle. 
prostaglandins cause the uterus to contract, which is sort of a, uh, uh, hopefully a stimulus to make it get softer. But I have seen success with just prostaglandin alone uh, and not having to add Pitocin. Mm. Um, again, I'm, I'm 12 years removed from doing that. So the policies in the hospitals may have changed. And since the last two years, I haven't even been in a hospital. Um, I don't know what they're doing. I can only say that a lot of times, this is a birthing instincts thing, that just because the hospital is doing something doesn't mean it's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your uh, understanding as a doctor, I mean, you've had, you have had a lot of experience in the hospital. Yeah, I mean, we use oral prostaglandin sometimes to people for postpartum hemorrhage, but I prefer to give it rectally. Yeah. Because I think it's local and it, then it doesn't have the, necessarily have the same GI side effects that oral, that oral prostaglandin will, will have. Which, okay. can, which can be, it, it can even go to lead to ulcers if you get, you know, you can get from prostaglandins. So those are the choices really, um, that or, or Pitocin. And okay. uh, Pitocin can be done low, low drip, high drip, and it really just depends on the situation and what's, how your uterus is responding. Um, but these are all level A evidence things, which means that they're, they're, they're known to be useful, they work, and they're potentially probably safe. Yeah. Um, the use of mesoprostol in women with a prior cesarean delivery or major uterine surgery, such as a myomectomy, is contraindicated. Uh, but Pitocin is not contraindicated. You can use uh, mesoprostol in women who have pre uh, uh, premature rupture of membranes. It's not a contraindication to use it for ruptured membranes. Um, and again, in this thing, they don't actually say if it's intravaginal, I'm looking to see. Uh, oh yeah, no, they say intravaginal induction of labor in women with premature rupture of membranes appears to be safe and effective. And I think they're all talking about intravaginal. I'm not sure why they switched the oral, why Dr. Salinas would say that. I had never heard that, so yeah. Right. I think the dose has to be a lot higher, but maybe I'm wrong about that too. So list, listeners can chime in. I we, we get I love your emails. I mean, don't respond to all of them, but I get a lot of things on Instagram messaging. I try to at least acknowledge you by giving you a little heart or something. <laughs> <laughs> a little love. Yes. <laughs> um, and just just for the listeners who are not um, practitioners, um, I had to really think about that word. Uh, we do uh, carry Pitocin as midwives and, and Dr. Stews um, out of the hospital, but we would never use it to augment um, labor like they do in the hospital because as you mentioned with misoprostol, you know, there, you can have adverse reactions either maternally or um, what's, I wanna say infant. What's the word for baby? Neonatally. Thank you. <laughs> That's like, why can't I think of it? Maternally or neonatally um, adverse reactions. So you actually should be monitored if you're using Pitocin as a method of augmentation. Well, neonatally, neonatally is actually after the baby's born. You mean, in, oh. in, in, you mean intrauterine. So fetal, yeah, what, the fetal, just fetal, fetal company. Thank you. Yeah. Do, do, do. <laughs> so more importantly than how we induce labor, really more importantly that we've gone through all these things and more importantly than that, again, is getting back to the idea of how is it that 45% of people in that United Kingdom women's hospital or 70% and other, how is it that all these people are getting induced or augmented? When I mean, did nature really fail us? Has, no. Has chaos taken over? Um, yes. <laughs> so 
<laughs> is, is, to, is to really understand the indications when they're necessary, when there's a true indication and not a fake one. Like, I think your baby's too big or your pelvis is too small or your fluid is too low-ish. Or, you know, um, I'm going golfing, uh, golfing vacation next week or that sort of thing. I mean, if you get this information and you decide you want to do it anyway, that's fine. But be sure that you get the information in a way that's unbiased. And if you're not comfortable with the way that things are being presented to you, then seek out that second opinion. Yeah. And what, Stu, let's just talk for a minute. What would be the downside to getting an induction? Like for a mom who's just like, I'm just done being pregnant. I really want this baby to come out. Like, you know, so what are, what are some there's, of the- There's a lot of downsides. First of all, we don't know what artificial Pitocin does, but it probably suppresses your own oxytocin. Yes. Know oxytocin is your bonding hormone. It's your love hormone. It's your milk letdown hormone. So you're getting Pitocin. Secondly, when you get Pitocin, you're almost always going to get what? An epidural. We've talked about the epidural. Oh no, we haven't. You said we haven't talked about the epidural. How the epidural, you know, I think that maybe we have because I've talked about this so many people. No, you've mentioned your theory. We just haven't ha done a whole episode on epidurals. Yeah, <laughs> well, we haven't. But my theory is that, of course, it interferes with the mother's communication with the baby through mother's neurotransmitters, which she stops secreting when she's suddenly not having discomfort anymore. So you get the epidural, then you end up with, obviously with a higher rate of intervention, you end up with a higher cesarean section rate, which means less likely to have skin to skin, which is in, or bonding, <laughs> sorry, I can't help it. Um, I really can't help myself, I'm sorry. Uh, so which can interfere with bonding, it can interfere with breastfeeding, uh, can, it can land your baby more likely into baby jail. And uh, so all these things going on, plus we don't know the long-term consequences of all that affecting the microbiome, uh, if those things happen or affecting the epigenetics of the baby or that sort of, we don't understand all that we do. So um, to do as little as possible outside of what mother nature designed probably makes the most sense of all because mother nature isn't stupid. We talked a little bit about vitamin K last time. And it was, it was good to hear uh, Candace Owens come up with the same, well, she didn't come up with the same sort of question, but was questioning it, but not for the same reason about, about why would nature create babies that are vitamin K deficient? So if there wasn't a reason for it. Oh, right. and by the way, that's interesting. Our friend Ruth, did you see that email she sent us? She said about vitamin K, one of the things that she thought about was mm -hmm. that it makes your blood a little sludgier and maybe the stem cells that are in your delayed cord clamping will have less chance of getting to where they're supposed to go. Interesting mm -hmm. theory. Why not put it out? Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Um, I love all of those things that you mentioned um, for downside. Another one is um, Pitocin is related to higher incidence of postpartum depression, probably for all of the reasons that you just talked about. Um, and then, you know, going back to astrology, why shouldn't we bring it back to astrology? Why shouldn't your baby pick its uh, its own uh, birth date? There's something very special, right, about the time and day that we're born. Um, so that is really being altered if we're affecting and so choosing. So you think that you think all these labors were prolonged because the babies didn't want to be born when Pisces was in Leo? Yes, and the gap. that explains it. Okay, but Pisces Pisces isn't in Leo anymore. So you babies, you can come out now. Okay, come on, babies, just easy. Easy breezy. <laughs> so why do we do induction in the first place? Why is induction at 45%, 70%, whatever percent? Why do people come out with papers like the ARRIVE trial where they want to induce everyone in 39 weeks? And I'll tell you, Bliss, it gets back 
to two things. It gets back to the theory about the baby in the bassinet, which we talked about, which is the only outcome that matters to them. And it gets back to today's motto, which is that um, the, the fear of adverse consequences creates people or makes people do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Um, it's stage one thinking because they don't think that their intervention is going to cause other adverse consequences. They're only worried about the adverse consequences that might end up in a courtroom. And that's a facade because the idea that we should do things because of getting sued, uh, that is not a good motivating factor. That's not a good reason to be doing something. It is a false argument. Um, yes, people get sued. 95% of lawsuits against physicians, Holloway, are, are dismissed, by the way. Um, because they're not, you know, just because someone sued doesn't mean there was any negligence. Um, and most, right. bad, most bad outcomes do not rep uh, represent negligence. Um, yet we have this world where that happens. In our world, I will just say that, that when we do what the CDC recommends and we actually communicate with our patients, um, we tend to get less lawsuits. Yeah. I mean, when you look at how often midwives are sued, I mean, we get we get investigated and all kinds of things happen from the government perspective. Yes. But actually sued from our clients is so low because of the way that we um, inform them and how we treat them and the open communications and the relationship that's developed. Um, it's it's a very rare thing. So. So I think that covers this topic pretty well. All right. I All right. think so too. I see you yeah. have a dream. I see you have a dream catcher behind you. Is it working? Oh, I'm in such a magical place right now. That's good. I'll let you know if my dreams are captured. Okay. So for all of us uh, on our production team at the Birthing Instincts <laughs> podcast, uh, we really appreciate you listening and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.